This morning we begin a study of the apocalypse of St. John the Divine. It is really a picture of Jesus Christ in his person and in his works. We won't find anything in the book of Revelation that is not taught, explained, preached, prophesied, and prefigured in all the books that go ahead of John. It's the very last book in the New Testament, and we will be looking at the particulars of the book probably through the year past Advent, even maybe going toward Easter. So if you're not interested in this book at all, uh, you can come and get some of your best sleep on a Sunday morning here in this quiet little chapel. But if you're interested, I think it's going to be a fascinating study for us. I really do. Please stand, if you would, for the reading of the word. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. What we're reading here is what's sometimes called the prologue. John, the writer of this book, is also the one who wrote the Gospel of John. And we also find in the Gospel of John, what? A prologue to the Gospel. You know the Gospel of John is rich in what John tells us just in the prologue. And so it is here in the Apocalypse as well. Hear now the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard him behind and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna and to Pergamum to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
That word apocalypse sometimes is a scary word because of so much of the connotation that we've seen in the last century or so in our literature and in our apocalyptic imagery. Bear in mind something as we read and study this book of Revelation for the next few weeks. Audio-visual technology has only been with us about 120 years. Think about that. It's a 20th and 21st century phenomenon. Now you can go into a theater and you can sit there and if it's raining on the screen, you'll feel the mist in your face. And if the things are turning upside down, you'll feel like you've been turned upside down. And you'll see the monster coming straight at you with, a, with an incredible speed. And you'll think that you've just been swallowed by the monster. The technology, the audiovisual technology that's taken place, the massive uh, things that are done just uh, in the old days in analog and now in digital is just phenomenal. And we've really been kind of had our minds messed with. And I'm afraid they're probably still trying to figure out ways to mess with our minds even more with modern audiovisual technology. There was none of this stuff in the ancient world and none of this stuff even in our world for 19 centuries since Christ. Everything had to be either portrayed physically or it was a part of a mental image, a vision. There was no mediation of technology that could do that for us. So what we have in this piece of literature, which is in its final analysis, as we read in the text, is a book. The Lord told the apostle to take what he saw. The Lord was going to show him visions. And he was to take what he saw. Bear in mind, you and I don't see it. John saw it. And the Lord told him to reduce it to writing. That is, put it in a scroll, put it in a book. And the book of Revelation, 22 chapters long in our text, is uh, among the very longest books in the New Testament. And it, it, it makes a pretty nice folio by itself. And to put that in a book. So John sees, we don't see. John writes it down in the words that we read, and that's what we do. But we don't really, collectively, necessarily read it. It was read in the churches, and the people heard it. They didn't see it. People sitting where you are in, in a, one of these original ancient churches... Sitting where you are, you didn't see the vision. You didn't write it down. You didn't even read it. You heard the words. That's all you had. That's all you need. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the dynamic that matches God's revelation to our auditing and our hearing is the bridge that we'll be working with this whole time. These dramatic scenes will be portrayed. John saw them. He wrote them down. 
This is a, not only an apocalyptic writing, this is not only a prophecy, that is, things that are to shortly come to pass, but this is also a letter. It's just like the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians or the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians or the Romans or any other letter. It has an epistolary form. It is greetings are sent to these churches. There's a particular audience, just like Paul sent to the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, the Romans. This is sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor there on the far east Mediterranean. They have a particular audience that will be hearing these words. And so this is the dynamic of the, of the book. And the interpretation of the book and the understanding of the book must never forget that dynamic. That these are visions and they're visions that describe not only visual imagery but auditory imagery as well. They're speaking of lightnings and and. and Images and beasts and individuals and people and animals and all sorts of things. But there's also uh, in, in there things that are not just visual but are, but are auditory. Things like thundering and peals of thunder and voices and trumpets. And so that also influences our hermeneutic. That is the way we interpret the scripture. Now, this prologue, I'm just going to walk through it this morning. That's what we have time for. But it's worth it because it sets the stage. It's amazing how many things in this book are, are uh, the stage is set by this particular, this particular passage. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation is the word apocalypse. And what it means, it means an unveiling. It means really to pull out of hiding and set alongside, to pull it out of hiding. Ironically, a lot of people think that the book of Revelation itself is so cryptic and so uh, mysterious that the book of Revelation itself is kind of the hiding of the message. But it's not. <laughs> this is the revelation. This is what has brought out of hiding that which God wants us to know and openly revealing. It's a picture of a curtain being pulled back and being able to see the, the thing that the Lord wants us to see. And this is, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. Any place you're reading in the book of Revelation, you're not too far from something. If you're not right on it, you're not too far from something having to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, I've heard incredible interpretations of the book of Revelation. If you were raised like I was on the Schofield Bible at Schofield Church, <laughs> then you saw all kinds of things in there, you know, tanks and horses and all kinds of battle implements and on and on and on. Some of that may or may not be there. Remember, the point of the book is to reveal, to uncover, to bring out of hiding, to bring to center stage and to pull the curtain back and to reveal in all glory is Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ, and it's from Jesus Christ. This is John who made Jesus known in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now John wants us to hear the revelation. And the Lord has impressed all this upon him and put him in the place where he can do it. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave, this comes from God, and you'll see that God is 
spelled out here in this very introduction as a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in essence, three distinct persons, and they are each manifested throughout the, throughout the book, together and individually, you'll see. So God gave this revelation to John, but it wasn't for John to consume it, it was for John to transmit it. It says, to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. That show, word show means to demonstrate, to pageant, to set forth in a parade, to make it known. Some people think the book of Revelation is to hide things, but it's not. It's right the opposite. It's to make great truths about God and his son, Jesus Christ, and the workings of God in human history, and the, the, the point to which all things travel, that is the great eschaton, the great last day, and even the final eternal state we see in the last couple of chapters in the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem coming down and all of the pictures that are there. It's, it's to reveal, it's to show. And it's interesting, he said, to show his servants. The point of Revelation is not to fascinate the theologians, although it does, but it's to show every everyday Christian some very important things that we need to know. And they're spelled out here in just a minute. Let me move along to, to see that. To show things that soon must take place. And we'll talk about it when we get to these particular places. What is being shown here that is taking place that we can understand what God has for us. But the immediacy of this prophecy to its fulfillment must not be underestimated. There's some sense in which whatever John saw... And whatever God gave him to reveal to us, to his servants, his bond servants, his people, was not something that was going to happen millennia later. It was something that was soon to take place. And we're going to see very soon in some of the things that we see in the book of Revelation took, take place very soon. That things that must soon take place. And by the way, this, this language here, you remember when we studied Daniel a year or two ago? Uh, Daniel chapter 2, when, when that long chapter that deals with the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and that Daniel came in to interpret when the other soothsayers and the other prophets and uh, 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 spiritual men in the kingdom couldn't interpret the dream and Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. This same language is used, and some believe it's just a pretty much of a direct quotation. What Daniel did for Nebuchadnezzar, John is doing for us. That is, opening it up, making it known. And he did this by sending his angel to his servant John. And the word angel just simply means a messenger. And just like in the book of Daniel we saw, the word angel can be... Uh, a ministering spirit, and we think of the supernatural work of angels, the part of God's created order, uh, that bring messages with archangels and all of that, can be that at times. The angel can be uh, just a messenger. That's all the word means. In fact, I think that's what it means when we come to the several churches. It'll say, to the angel at Ephesus, right. To the angel at Smyrna, right. And the angel could just mean the messenger, and some have 
understood that to just be the minister, the one who brings the word. The people didn't have a copy in their, in their pews. They had the word of the messenger, and the messenger of God to the individual churches were those elders and those men that God had consecrated to be his, his spokesman. But it also, at times... The word angel can mean nothing more than an emissary that's come forth to do something, and that can be even applied to Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, kind of a, a, an interesting figure you see in several places in the book of Joshua and, and other places, is uh, an example of this sort of thing. So the angel is God's messenger. There may be one, there may be many, there may be manifold, but this is the... the uh, method of, uh, of delivery that God uses. When God delivers a message, he has a messenger. And that's what he's saying here. He sent his angel to his servant John. And the same word is used, the servant is the bond slave of John. Now, let me stop here real quick. I think, I know that most of you know all this, so I'm, I'm kind of hitting it lightly. But this John is John, the divine, John. this is the apostle John. This is the brother of James. You remember James was the, one of the very first members of the early church to be uh, martyred under King Herod. He, had, he was martyred, his brother. These are the sons of Zebedee. These are the two boys that argued over who was going to be the greatest and who was going to sit on the left and who was going to sit on the right, James and John. These were the fishermen that, along with Peter and Andrew, fished the Sea of Galilee for a living for years. That's who this is. James died early, the first apostle. Apparently, John is the last apostle to die. Jesus had made reference to that in the Gospel of John. We read about it. And he has outlived all of them, outlived Andrew, outlived Peter, outlived all the other apostles. And he alone remains as the last apostle. And he's the one that the Lord gives this particular revelation to. This is the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the, the, uh, the apostle John. Um, and the reason I mention that and just leave it at that is because everything I'm saying up here, every indicative sentence that I try to construct is disputed, debated, <laughs> denied 15 reasons for and 10 reasons against that interpretation. So be aware of that and uh, take it into your own soul and work with it. But this, this is the way I you know, all I know is to preach what I think I know, <laughs> you know, what I understand after looking at it. And so we're looking at that John, not some uh, John later on uh, in, in, uh, in church history in the second century, but this is a first century John, and it's a first century composition. And this is John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Uh, if you're familiar with John's writing, you know he makes much of those two words, testimony and witness. He insists in his letter that he was an eyewitness to the glory of the uh, Son of God in his earthly ministry. We saw him, we beheld him, our hands have handled him, the word of life. This idea of eyewitness testimony, being able to, to properly witness and then to verify and then to bear witness, to testify about it, are very important in the mind of John. And it's also very important in the mind of any gospel writer. And it's important even today that be faithful witness, good 
accurate eyewitness testimony. Uh, they, uh, so much of what we believe hangs on the testimony of the witnesses, the witnesses to Jesus, the witness to his, his, his life, the witnesses to his resurrection, especially the witnesses to his post-resurrection appearances, the, the 500 brethren that, that saw him alive after his crucifixion. So this notion of bearing witness is famous and important and large in the mind of the apostolic community and certainly to this John. Even after all these years, he wants to make sure that we have this. And then there is a benediction that's given, a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. You can read any of the pastoral epistles and Paul will make a big deal out of the importance of reading scripture in the congregation among the people. Uh, we did a good job of that this morning. We read a lot of scripture. Uh, it's a shame we don't read more scripture publicly in our worship services, but the blessing is to the one who, who does this, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. And as you know, the word hear in the ancient Hebrew thinking also meant to obey. To hear something is to obey it. My dad used to say that to me every once in a while when I was younger. He said, did you hear me? Well, yeah, I heard him. <laughs> I just didn't, I just didn't do what he just told me to do. I hadn't obeyed him. Well, this is what, what the blessing is for. It's not for those that just, just audit the, the word of God, but it's those who keep what is written in it. Why? Because it's practical, it's immediate, it's urgent, it is imminent, for the time is near. Now that's one of the concepts in the New Testament that you've got to get your hands around and kind of get a good grip on, and that is the, the actual cosmic timing of the New Testament era. The Bible in the Old Testament, and then coming into the New, only knows two epochs of time. The former days and the latter days. The former days are the days before the coming of Christ to earth. And the latter days or the last days are the days since Christ has appeared. So when Christ came, he preached the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And in the mind of the, the, the biblical perspective is that everything that's happened since Christ came to earth and had his earthly ministry and did his work, death, burial, resurrection, and so forth, since the appearance of Christ on earth in the flesh and his salvific work, everything is in the last days. So Jesus was living in the last days. So was Paul. So was John some decades later. So are we. There's no last days of the last days. The last days are the last days. And everything there is near, imminent, at hand, and about to take place. Now, I admit it's a problem when you think about, good, goodness, Ron, it's been 2,000 years. Uh, we got to have some kind of timing in there and break that up into some certain ages, you know, a, a church age or an age of grace, all these different ages. That is, in my mind, completely bogus 
when it comes to trying to put something like that on the scripture. There's only two epochs of time, the former days and the latter days. And we're in the latter days. And everything that the Old Testament saints talked about, the prophets and all of them did about the latter days were things that take place during that last days, which is the age of Christ, the age of fulfillment, the age of the kingdom. It's the coming of Christ. Everything Christ did while he was here Everything Christ is doing now by his spirit as he reigns with his people upon the heavenly throne for century after century as it's turned out and all the way, all the way to the eschaton, the last day. So we're in the last days now. John was in the last days as well. People that try to subdivide and to project and telescope and whatever else a mountain peak or whatever else they talk about are really starting starting to warp scripture a little bit in my estimation just take that for what it's worth that's where you'll you'll be really helped when you hear the scripture talk about the notion of imminence something is here it's at hand the kingdom of god was at hand when jesus came and preached it it's at hand today as well equally and the same and the epochs of time, the characteristics of the epoch of time all remain the same. We are in the post-resurrection and ascended era of God's work with his people. God's not done. He's not through. There are other things yet to take place. There are more to be fulfilled. One of the great arguments that Orthodox Jews and others make against Christianity is it the Old Testament says all this stuff Jesus is going to do when he comes, including establishing this massive kingdom, subjecting all the people, bringing about a rule and a reign of righteousness, settling justice, settling all accounts and affairs, judging right, assigning uh, uh, blame and assigning uh, condemnation and, and all these things. And they just said, they say simply that uh, like Tovia Singer and some of the really famous, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do any of that. So he really wasn't the Christ, was he? He really wasn't the Son of God, was he? And so they make that strong argument. Well, God's not done. He is in the midst of the years in his work with us who are strapped in time. Well, I see I've gone way too long on that. Here's how I'm going to make it up to you. I'm just going to give you bare outline material. This is a letter. He writes it to the seven churches. He says, grace and peace. And then there is several groupings of threes. And let's just notice those and then we're done. From him, come the greeting and peace is coming from him, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the scope of history. It's hard to find a one moment of history outside of those categories. Something that was, something that is, and something that is to come. The almighty, the sovereign over over uh, creation. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. In our reading this morning, we talked about the seven torches before the throne, the seven spirits. Well, we're going to get into biblical imagery. It's going to be a lot of fun, but I'll just tip you off right now that this is a reference to the perfect seven, perfect spirit of God, who is, of course, we know as the Holy Spirit of God that is manifested in this way. And from Jesus... Three things, faithful witness, 
firstborn of the dead, that's the resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's what Jesus has, has done. And so there's the three things. By the way, those are lifted out of this of Psalm 89. The 89th Psalm speaks of all of those things. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that's from, and now it's to him. All things are from him, by him, and to him, and through him, Paul tells us in his doxologies. Well, this doxology says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests. There's another three right there. Three things that Jesus has done. He has freed us. He's loosed us. He's redeemed us from our sins by his blood. There's, even John keeps on talking about the blood atonement of Christ, by the way. Made us a kingdom of priests. This is a quotation from Exodus 19, which we saw not too many weeks ago, where the Lord said he is going to make us a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And we would have those two anointed offices bestowed upon us in the person of our king and our high priest Jesus, but then we will share in, the, in that work. And you'll see, see Revelation talking about reigning with Christ. That's because we are a kingdom of priests. And then uh, to his father, to him be glory and dominion forever. So you've seen the father, the son, and the spirit in this passage and then he goes ahead and, and, uh, and finishes that. Verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and the end. That's the first and the last, says the Lord God, who is, and it talks about the historical spectrum again, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It's not just about God's uh, existence, but it's God's power. Almighty is the, is the comprehensive term in theology that talks about the extent of the capability of God. And that involves creation of the whole world, the providence, the ruling. God is mighty to save. He's mighty to do all of these things. And then we've talked a little bit pretty, pretty much about John here. Let me just point out a couple of things. John says he is our brother and partner in three things. In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Ron, are we in the tribulation? When do you think the tribulation is going to happen? We're in it, brothers and sisters. And we're also, when do you think the kingdom of God is going to happen? We're in it, brothers and sisters. Christ inaugurated at his first come. He's ruling and reigning in one way, and he will rule and reign in a more complete and absolute way. We'll, we'll look and expect that. But then here's the important thing. This is the practical application of this whole passage. He's a brother and a partner with us, John is. In patient endurance, hypermone, words used over and over in the book of Hebrews, over and over in the New Testament, and it basically means that it is those that patiently undergo and bear up under a tribulation. And that is the story of the saints on earth in the inter-advental period. The inter-advent is the comings of Christ, the first coming, the second coming. This whole period of time in the inter-advent is a time of tribulation. And it is a time of the saints patiently enduring, bearing under, surviving, trusting in the Lord. And then he talks about everything pretty much we've already talked about here in terms of him being in prison, uh, on an island, 
He is there because of his preaching and his teaching. He's bearing witness and they put him in jail. And so he said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard this, this voice. It was a trumpet voice. It was the Lord himself saying to write a book and to do all that that we talked about in terms of writing it down so that it could be read in the churches so that it could tell us what we needed to know in order to see with the eye of faith Jesus Christ. Brother Pete, see what you can do in seven minutes. That's all I'll let you.